Welcome again to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is going to be sharing a message from Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. If you're looking for a church home, a place that you can connect with other believers, worship and study together, let me invite you to come and to visit us at Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. You can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Again, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is going to be sharing a message from Genesis entitled Rainbow, God's Promise or Man's Pride. Let's listen together. I want you to imagine with me, if you will, what it might have been like for Noah, Mrs. Noah, their three sons and their three daughters-in-law after the cataclysmic flood that had destroyed and wiped away the world as they had known it before. Those days in the ark must have been somewhat of a terrifying experience. With the collapse of the moisture canopy above the earth and the bursting forth of the great deposits of water beneath the earth, with all of the rain that came monsoon-like all over the world, the earth was quickly inundated until there was no more dry ground. It was not a regional flood. It was a universal flood. Imagine what it was like hearing people drowning and dying on the outside of the ark. Maybe banging on the side, asking to be let in. Their neighbors, maybe even family members. Imagine being inside the ark, not knowing if this huge boat would actually and truly float and keep them dry. Would it be that or would it be just one big wooden coffin where we are all going to die? But as you know, float it did. And now the waters were receding. And they stepped out of the ark into a world changed forever. A brave new world. The land looked different. The sky looked different. The atmosphere around them was different. Now, I can't help but think about this. Imagine what it was like the first time a big, ugly, frog-strangler cloud blew up from the southwest and started to pour down on them monsoon rains again, 
pounding rain with lightning and thunder. Can you imagine their potential fear? Is it going to flood again? What will we do? Is the nightmare of the past going to repeat itself? But then they remember. God had made a promise. And that's what we read in Genesis 9, beginning with verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. And indeed, thanks be to God for it. Seven times, count them, seven times in this paragraph of God's word. The word covenant is mentioned. Covenant coming every time from the lips of the Lord. Verse 8, behold, I establish my covenant with you. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Verse 12, the covenant that I make between me and you. Verse 13, the covenant between me and the earth. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you. Verse 16, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. Verse 17, the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So repetitious. I don't know of another passage of scripture that really reads quite so repetitiously as this. The Lord is making a point here. And the point is this. Everything that God does he does based on a covenant, on a commitment. The Bible itself is divided into two parts, the Old and New Testaments, which is literally the Old and New Covenants. 
We find that this covenant always is a bond between two parties. It, it's like a contract, but it's more than a contract because it's based on a relationship. And it represents a relationship. Sometimes God's covenant goes both ways. I will do this if you will do that. But several times, as in this case, it is a one-way covenant. Regardless of what you do, regardless of how you respond, the Lord says, this is what I'm going to do. It is a promise to you. It is a solemn binding agreement. Now, the covenant described in these verses that we read is often known as the Noahic covenant because it was given to Noah. But it was given to more than Noah. It was given to his family. It was given to all the beasts that had been on the ark with him for those days during the flood. But it is also given to all who are to follow. You and I live today under the promise of this covenant that God will never destroy the world by way of a flood again. Now, He will destroy the world and He will uh, purge it at the end of time, but it will not be by way of a flood, but rather by fire. So the promise was, never destroy the world by way of a universal flood. He said in verse 11, never again. And he said it again in verse 11, never again. And he said in verse 15, never again. And in order for man to remember this, he said, let me give you a reminder. Let me give you a sign of this covenant. I have set my bow in the cloud. What we know is the rainbow. God has given us this sign as a covenant. I remember from the earliest of ages uh, being with my grandparents in Mountain View, Arkansas, where I lived with them when I was young. And I can remember Grandpa pointing out a rainbow and saying, Son, that is God's promise to us that He will never destroy the world by a flood again. This covenant that God gave Noah was unconditional. It was not based on what man does, what Noah did. It was one way, unconditional. It was made to Noah and his descendants as well as every living creature on earth or ever will be on the earth, including you and me. And it was sealed with a sign. Now the rainbow is an amazing thing, is it not? Do you ever cease to get tired of seeing a rainbow in the sky. It's an amazing thing created by God. Light that you and I see as white is actually composed of seven colors. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. And when that white light passes through a prism, or a droplet of water, a raindrop in the sky. It is broken down into those colors, and what we see is a spectrum of what we call a rainbow in the sky, sometimes a double rainbow. It was created by God to remind us of faithfulness, mercy, and grace. 
It is a sign of God's faithfulness, mercy, and grace. It reminds us of his creative powers and his majesty. But that amazing atmospheric feature, the rainbow, has been seized and it has been given a new meaning in our world today. No longer for many does it represent God's promise. Instead, it has come to represent man's pride. In fact, it is specifically called gay pride. It is now a flag flown by the LGBTQ, and I'm not sure what other letters are now following that, but it is representative of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer movement in our country and in the world. A movement that at one time just asked to be acknowledged and not discriminated against is now a world and a movement that demands our acceptance and our approval. And now we've come through this month of June, almost a whole month known as Pride Month. Everywhere, TV, radio, billboards, businesses, we have been reminded and force-fed the gay agenda. And for some, to disagree or even just to ignore it has had grave consequences. It's an amazing thing that the birth of our nation that we will celebrate a week from tomorrow, or a salute to the veterans who have served in the armed forces of our country, or remembering on Memorial Day those who paid the ultimate price for our freedom to live as we want to live and to carry on life uh, not in bondage to, to a dictator, that those people and those who served and those who gave their all for us only get one day on a calendar that is usually ignored. While the gay pride agenda is celebrated for a whole month. So what is the Christian, the true follower of Christ, to make of all of this? How should we respond? What should we say to those family members or friends who are in that world? I have them. Do you? How do we Think Christianly about this whole stuff, all this, this whole thing, this Pride Month. Well, as you can imagine, there are several ways to go from here in our study and our consideration. I'm still struggling with it. We may do that another Sunday or two. But for right now, I want to address what I believe to be the most fundamental issue and the most fundamental problem with Pride Month. And believe it or not, it's not homosexuality. It's not transgenderism. It's not any of those specific behaviors. 
For they are just expressions of what the real problem is. What is the real fundamental issue of all of this? What is the attitude behind the agenda? What is the real heart issue? Not just the fleshly lifestyle. I believe the heart problem is expressed in the very name given to the month of June. The greatest problem is P-R-I-D-E. It's pride. In the time that I have left, let me tell you four things the Bible says about pride. Not just gay pride, but any kind of pride. And the first one is this. Pride is the first sin of all. It is the first sin that was ever committed. And it is the door to all other sins. The most fundamental sin problem that we have is pride. It is self-seeking advancement. You might call pride the gateway sin. It is the deadly root of our sins and our sorrows. Remember C.S. Lewis refers to pride as the great sin. And he says this, here are his words. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Can you take that in? That pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride that is the chief cause of all misery in every nation and every family since the world began. In the great leaders of the past, Augustine and Aquinas, Calvin and Luther and others, they all taught that pride was the root of all sin. Make no mistake about it. Pride is the great sin. It is the devil's most effective and destructive tool. Now understand, if you were to go to the book of Ezekiel, I believe it's about chapter 38, you will find where pride has its origins. And we're not going to turn there and read, but do you remember what the origin of pride, do you remember the first person to express pride who it was? It was Lucifer. It was this, this beautiful, angelic being of heaven, referred to as the anointed cherub that covereth. His beauty was beyond all the others. It, it seems, if you read in the Old Testament books of Isaiah and Ezekiel, that, that he might have been like the worship leader of heaven the chief of all the angelic host. But the Bible says that his heart was lifted up through pride. And he said, I will be like the most high. I will take over the throne of God himself. And he led a rebellion in heaven. 
And in that rebellion, perhaps as many as one-third of all the angels of heaven joined with him in that rebellion. The book of Revelation tells us how the dragon with his tail, he swept a third of the stars of heaven out of the sky. And so these led, there was war in heaven, and he fought against Michael, and he fought against the, the, uh, God, the God of heaven himself, and he was cast down, Jesus says in the book of Matthew, I saw Lucifer fall like heaven from sky, the skies as he was cast down and cast out. And now, here he is, he roams this earth, and these fallen angels are the demons that do his bidding. But understand and remember, it was pride that motivated him from the very start. And it was pride that he came in the form of a serpent in Genesis chapter 3 and began to speak so soothingly and deceptively to the woman, to Eve. And at first, he questioned the truth of God's word. Did God really say? And then he began to cause that questioning to go deeper. God was just holding out on you. He doesn't want you to become like him. And then the desire to lift up and to exalt herself. Eve is now confused and in a deceived state of mind considered the possibilities. Her desire to become godlike grew stronger. She began to look at the forbidden fruit in a new light and something attractive to the eyes, pleasant to the touch. Desire increased, and it gave way to rationalization. And finally, an erosion of the will. Listen to this statement. We're going to put it on the screen, I believe, just simply because it is so powerful. Finally, weakened by unbelief, enticed by pride, and ensnared by self-deception, she opted for autonomy and disobeyed God's command. Beloved, every person here, everyone here, and including myself, we opt for autonomy all the time. When we face life decisions, when we face life issues, we tend to want to do our will. We tend to want to be in control of the situation, in control of the relationship, in control of the matter at hand. And we don't always first flee to God for an answer, but we try to figure it out with our own wisdom, with our own knowledge, with our own experience. We opt for autonomy. We don't want to be controlled by anyone. We don't want to submit ourselves to any authority. We don't want to have anyone else in control of our lives, even God. We certainly want His blessing. We just don't want to have to answer to Him. And that was exactly what Eve and Adam did in following and understand it was because of pride, wanting my way, not God's way. So remember this above all else about pride. It is the first sin. It opens the door to all other sins. 
and to celebrate and to designate a day, let alone a month, and to shake our fist in the face of God, of His Word, of all that is right and all that is holy, and exalt man's pride is the ultimate abomination against a God who loves you and a God who gave His Son Jesus to pay the price for our sins. So pride, in its very, in its very nature, and by the way, we could not in a full Sunday morning service read every verse where the Bible condemns pride and every example where we see it in action. So pride is the first sin. A second truth, pride is an attitude that God hates. God hates pride. God hates your pride. God hates my pride. Somewhere around the year 600, Pope Gregory I compiled a list of what came to be known as the seven deadly sins. Have you ever heard that expression? The seven deadly sins? They were sins that according to the Catholic Church could not be forgiven. They were deadly. And pride was listed among those seven. Well, you and I know, if you know the Bible and have read the Bible, there is no sin beyond God's forgiving, forgiving and saving power. Amen? God is able and God is willing to forgive all sin, with the exception of what Jesus refers to as the unpardonable sin, which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that's another topic altogether. But the Bible, did you know? But the Bible does list seven sins that the Lord hates. It does not list the seven deadly sins that Pope Gregory came up with, but the Bible does name in the book of Proverbs seven sins that God hates. And in fact, the scripture says in Proverbs chapter 6, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. So what are the big seven to God? Is it okay if I read them in reverse order and do a countdown to number one? Let's start with number seven. Those who sow discord among the brethren. Those who stir up uh, trouble and strife among Christian brothers and sisters. Troublemakers in the church. God hates that. Number six, a false witness who speaks lies. Number five, feet that are swift in running towards evil. Number four, a heart that devises wicked plans. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Number two, a lying tongue. And finally, number one, can we have a drum roll, please? Number one sin God hates, a proud look. A proud look. 
of all the sins and abominations manifested in the world, it's interesting that pride is first on the list of man's evils. God hates pride. A third truth about pride. Pride closes your heart to God, while humility opens your heart to God. Pride and humility are opposites. Pride closes your heart to God. Humility opens your heart to God. I wonder what kind of success we would have if we promoted and encouraged a humility month on our country's calendar. And let it be a month of repentance, a month of seeking God's forgiveness, a month of fasting and prayer as we ask for God's revival and God's renewal and God's blessing. Is it any wonder why our country is going, pardon the expression, to hell in a handbasket? When we exalt and lift up pride and in our arrogance and our seeking for autonomy basically shake our fist in the face of God and say, no thanks, we'll do life our way. Forget the Bible, forget the church, forget all that Christianese stuff. We can do it better. Pride closes your heart to God while humility opens your heart to God. There was a a English Anglican pastor, author, and theologian early in the last century named John R.W. Stott. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Some say he was the most influential person of the 20th century. John Stott said this, Pride is your deadly enemy, while humility is your greatest friend. Pride is your deadly enemy, while humility is your greatest friend. Few people realize how dangerous it is to our souls and how greatly it hinders our intimacy with God and our love for others. Pride is the great hindrance to our Christian lives. Why should we exalt pride of any kind? This is what God had to say to his people. You remember how God brought his people out of Egyptian bondage with great miracles, the ten plagues there in in Egypt. Then he parted the waters for them. Then for 40 years he fed them and he clothed them in a desert wilderness. There were some three million of them. You remember how he took care of them and how over 40 years their clothes did not wear out, their uh, sandals did not show any wear. God just preserved everything for them and he prepared a land for them, a promised land. And just before going into that promised land, in the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, God says this to his people in chapter 8. Take care 
lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. For when you forget those things, then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Don't forget. Don't ever forget what God has done for you. That's what he's saying. For when you forget what God has done, you will lift up your heart in pride thinking you are responsible for the good things in your life. Pride closes your heart to God, humility opens your heart to God. Number four, the last thing I'll share with you today about pride. Pride leads to destruction. Pride leads to destruction. It is very ironic to me that those who started pride events and glory in a pride month, and even businesses and companies that embrace and advance the whole idea and the whole spirit behind Pride Month, that they chose to name their entire movement after a sin that the book of Proverbs assures us is the prelude to destruction. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Just as we would be wise to avoid celebrating a lust parade or a wrath month, Christians should have nothing to do with Pride Month. You should not advance it. You should not promote it. You should not participate in it. And some of you are thinking, well, preacher, you're at least three or four weeks late with this message. I realize that. I fought even, even getting into this topic altogether. But understand the thing that follows pride, whether it's your personal pride in your achievements or whether it is a worldwide movement founded and grounded in sinful behavior, understand what comes next. It is destruction. God may be patient. God may appear to not care that he's looking the other way. But understand, just like the people in Noah's day who laughed at Noah, who made fun of Noah, who ignored for 120 years the preaching of Noah, that destruction was coming. The moment it began to come, they were the ones banging on the ark, wanting in. 
but it was too late. Saul, King Saul, disregarded God's command, and the Holy Spirit left him. David proudly numbered his army, and thousands died at the hand of the Lord. Solomon, his son, proudly trusted his wealth and his wisdom. But after his death, the entire uh, country and the entire ruling of his family was ripped from his hands. King Uzziah proudly usurped the role of the priest. And God struck him down with leprosy. The apostles had an anointing for preaching and healing until they trusted the anointing more than God and then they experienced ministry failure. We could go on and on and on again. For 80% of those who were considered leaders or influencers in the Bible, some 400 of them, 80% of them did not finish their lives well, did not finish their lives strong. They stumbled and they limped to the finish line because of sinful failure, usually having its roots in the sin of pride. So here's the bottom line. Pride month, by the very attitude that derives it, or that drives it, is something that God hates and will ultimately lead to destruction. And again, I'm speaking about the attitude driving it, not just the actions and behaviors it is known for. For you see, the attitude driving it is an attitude that you and I have to deal with every single day also. Straight people are proud people. Christian people can be proud people. But remember this, while we all struggle with pride, it shows itself in a lot of things that tend to look good to us. Self-reliance. self Confidence, self-pity, self-centeredness, self-consciousness, self-doubt. And just about, follow me now, just about everything else you can name that follows the word self is an expression of sinful pride. Perhaps the only exception is that phrase that none of us likes. It's called self-denial. And Jesus speaks about that in Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl 
if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul. Pray with me, please. Father, I am the first in this room that should confess and repent of this awful, life-destroying sin of pride. My self-consciousness, my self-doubts, my fears, my insecurities, my self-confidence where there are maybe some areas. All of these are a sin against you. And pride leads to destruction. Father, forgive me and cleanse me. And may our country be cleansed of this awful, awful desire to exalt our autonomy against you. Whether it's Pride Month or any other month. Father, please forgive us and bring us back to yourself. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.